friends, welcome to another edition of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that you can contact us through our email address, which is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's onbecomingpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. We've been talking about the future of higher education. Today we turn to the issue of scholarship. In an article titled, The Next Battle in Higher Ed May Strike at Its Soul, Scholarship, Anamonia Hartikolis suggests that higher ed is about to come under attack. If you're wondering what she means by that, perhaps you've heard of Bill Ackman, a big donor to Harvard who thought he was being ignored and has decided to make them pay attention to him. Ackman has pledged to read everything the faculty at MIT has published in order to discover which of it has been plagiarized. Let's just take a moment to enjoy the craziness of such a claim. Ackman wants to read everything the MIT faculty has published. Good luck with that. Of course, to make any accusations of plagiarism possible, you would also need to read the primary and secondary source references in each and every publication. That will really take a lot of time, as in decades. And unfortunately, to detect certain kinds of plagiarism, not the kind that's merely copy and paste, that's, you know, just, you know, garden variety plagiarism, you'd need to be a specialist in that field, which would enable you to see who had gotten what from whom. By the way, that's already an important clue regarding the problem of plagiarism. Blatant plagiarism is sometimes easy to spot. Years ago, a friend of mine was the TA for a professor teaching a course on philosophy of religion. He was reading a student essay and suddenly thought, there's something fishy about this. As it turns out, the student had copied an entire essay written by the philosopher William James, and the student had even used the same title. What was that student thinking? Just so you know, James was writing about a century ago. People spoke and wrote somewhat differently back then, so copying an essay with its old-fashioned language seems like a really dumb thing to do. It would be immediately obvious that the student hadn't written the essay, and indeed it was immediately obvious. A further problem, of course, is that college student papers don't usually read like pieces of published professional philosophy. If a student wished to plagiarize, the best course of action would be to copy something written by another student, or written, shall we say, at the student level. Years ago, I remember reading a captivating article published anonymously by someone who writes papers for hire. When he writes these, he asks questions in advance like, do you want this to be an A paper or some other grade? Or two, what level is the course? Which gives the writer of an idea of how to pitch the paper. You might wonder about the first question. Wouldn't you want a paper written for you to be an A paper? The reality, of course, is that if you turn in an A paper for your final paper, but your other grades have been more like B's and C's, the professor is very likely, at the very least, to wonder if you were the author. Thus, if you're already getting a B or C, it's best to ask for a paper that's at that level. Of course, I'm in no way suggesting that anyone plagiarize anything. One of the memorable parts of the article was the author musing on the seminary students who asked for papers, somehow not realizing that turning in a plagiarized paper was deeply at odds with their vocation. 
But most cases of plagiarism are not nearly as straightforward as that. If someone copies a paragraph from someone else and then inserts it into a paper, it may not be at all obvious. As long as the copied paragraph sounds more or less like the rest of the paper, it may not be easily identifiable. And here I want to add a further point. Like all academics, I've read my share of papers submitted for blind review, and I suspect that in principle, reviewers of potential articles should be looking for signs of plagiarism. But being able to say certain phrases or sentences or paragraphs as plagiarism requires knowing the sources from which the author is quoting. Reading a potential article is already a time-consuming task. I suspect that very few, if any, reviewers would even think of hunting down all the sources and reading them to check for plagiarism. Put another way, if we as reviewers of potential articles had to review all of the sources cited, I suspect no one would ever agree to act as a referee for such articles. Add to the fact that reviewers are not paid, which means it's already a gratuitous task just to read and evaluate a potential article. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to provide some context. Most people know that Elise Stefanik gave the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT a bit of a grilling before Congress in December 2023. Just to be clear, she did have an axe to grind. At a news conference, Stefanik said, This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels, and the only change they have made to their code of conduct where they failed to condemn calls for genocide of Jewish people. If you remember the four-hour grill session, you'll remember that there were accusations of plagiarism as well as anti-Semitism. Nothing like getting important but very different things all rolled into one big thing. Stefanik was elected as a modern and refused even to say the name uh, Trump when he was nominated. But then she proved to be an ally of Trump during the 2019 impeachment hearing. She declared in 2022, I am ultra mega, and I'm proud of it. She has promised that the congressional investigation, and here I'm quoting, will continue to move forward to expose the rot in our most prestigious higher education institutions and deliver accountability to the American people. That's a really interesting statement. Though one can ask exactly what this rot is, or perhaps better phrased, who is part of this rot? Speaking of Claudine Gay, Stefanik said that her answers were, and I'm quoting here, absolutely pathetic and devoid of the moral leadership and academic integrity required of the president of Harvard. I didn't watch the entire grilling. It was just too painful and also a waste of time. But there's no question that Gay's answers were not particularly good. I think pathetic is probably appropriate. However, I'm not exactly sure what sort of moral leadership Stefanik thinks is missing, nor am I sure exactly what Stefanik means by a lack of academic integrity. Is she referring to issues of plagiarism, or is she referring to some other kind of thing that's more general? But I do worry, and I worry a lot, when I read Stefanik say that, and here I'm quoting, this is just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university in history. How does one know in advance that something will be the greatest scandal in history? One wonders if Stefanik can say that because she intends to manufacture a scandal. 
Yet there's a further aspect that has emerged in a New York Times article as of today. You are probably aware that the presidents of both Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania have been forced to resign in the wake of that grilling. The situation at Penn is that another alumnus and big donor, Mark Rowan, has sent a long email titled Moving Forward to the university. Just to clarify, Rowan gave the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania $50 million back in 2018. That was the largest gift it had ever received. Unfortunately, though, big donors often want their donation to be tied to certain strings. The difficulty, of course, is that even though Rowan has been successful in finance, that in no way qualifies him as an educator. You should know that colleges and universities often find it difficult to deal with big donors because those people assume that their gift entitles them to dictate policy. Faculty members are even less keen on that sort of thing, which easily explains why Rowan's email was not well received by the faculty. Quoted in the article is Professor Amy C. Offner, who describes Rowan's proposal as a hostile takeover of the core academic functions of the university. That's a pretty strong statement. The author of the article, Stephanie Saul, describes the foes of Penn as being convinced that, and here I'm quoting, universities have been taken over by a liberal orthodoxy that tolerates or even promotes anti-Semitism. I've never taught at Penn or even been there. But I find the connection between a liberal orthodoxy and anti-Semitism hard to see. I'm not disagreeing with the aspect of liberal orthodoxy. That's been a part of the academic world for a long time and probably needs at the very least to be examined. What I find much less plausible is the contention that liberal orthodoxy necessarily leads to anti-Semitism. But there seems to be a wider agenda. One of the things for which Rowan and also Ronald S. Lauder, are pushing for is the removal of the tax-exempt status of certain universities. Personally, I have long had questions about whether truly rich universities like Harvard and Penn should be continued to be granted a tax exemption. While they're not officially businesses, the Harvard Corporation, and that's what it's called, has about $50 billion in its endowment. Harvard may be officially a nonprofit, but I think it's done rather well. Of course, one might have questions regarding the tax exempt status of other schools. For instance, back in 1983, Bob Jones University had its tax exempt status revoked by the IRS because it prohibited dating between students of different races. More recently, the school has gotten back that status. It has since dropped the interracial dating prohibition, though its president, Steve Pettit, says that it required putting together a complicated plan to convince the IRS to change its mind. At some point, I do want to address this whole issue of tax exempt status, but I'm going to skip over that topic here. We've mentioned that Liz McGill, the president, was forced to resign, but the chair of the board of trustees, Scott L. Bach, also resigned. According to Bach, during his 19 years on the board, he had the sense that a, and now I'm quoting, very broad, largely unspoken consensus on the roles of the various university constituencies. 
the board, donors, alumni, faculty, and administration. He continued by saying that once I concluded that this long-time consensus had evaporated, I determined that I should step off the board and leave it to others to find a new path forward. There's a further wrinkle to what's happening at Penn. According to Offner, who is the president of the local chapter of the American Association of University Professors, AAUCP, all of this constitutes, and here I'm quoting, an anti-democratic attack unfolding not just on Penn, but all across the country, including at public universities in Florida, in Texas, Ohio, and beyond. In other words, faculty at Penn see, for instance, what's happening at New College in Florida as connected to the situation at Penn. If you wonder about that, I encourage you to read up on the New College situation, which has helped pave the way for these kinds of attacks. Basically, what happened at New College is the governor, Ron DeSantis, decided to take what was a state-sponsored liberal arts school and apply the model of Hillsdale College, a conservative evangelical school, to New College. While there are many aspects to this change, perhaps the most troubling is that New College is a state school. The obvious question is, how can a school funded by the state of Florida become explicitly evangelical? Or, to put this otherwise, how does this square with the assumed separation of church and state? In any case, Offner describes Penn as being at, and now I'm quoting again, ground zero of a coordinated assault on higher education, an assault organized by billionaires, lobbying organizations, and politicians who would like to control what can be studied and taught in the United States. In other words, Offner is explicitly connecting these attacks upon educational institutions that's happening in multiple states. In case you're wondering if the faculty at Penn is worrying too much, an examination of the email sent by Rowan is helpful. For instance, Rowan asks whether some university departments should be eliminated. If you're a faculty member, the mere mentioning of eliminating departments provokes fear since you don't want to be fired, and you don't really want your colleagues to be fired. Let me mention something that, if you're not an academic, you probably don't know. If a given faculty member has tenure, then removing such a faculty member is somewhat complicated. That's not true everywhere. As one of my former colleagues said of tenure at the institution where I taught, it just means that it takes 15 minutes longer to fire you. I think that's a pretty accurate statement. However, if you really want to get rid of someone with tenure, you can just eliminate the entire department. The school where I taught did that with the graduate communications department. They just closed it down. When a school closes a department, the faculty who teach in that department immediately lose their jobs. If you're wondering, does this really happen? I can tell you that Cedarville College in Ohio solved the problem of pesky philosophy professors by simply eliminating the Department of Philosophy. So the idea of closing a department is not an abstract threat. Further, the academic world is unlike the business world in many ways, but one important aspect here is that getting a job teaching at a college or university has grown incredibly difficult. To leave such a job and find another is even more difficult. If you're in the first few years of teaching, moving is often possible and can sometimes even lead to a better position. But once you pass that mark, 
moving somewhere else becomes extremely complex. The stars have to align to make it possible. All that is simply to say that in the academic world, moving to another position is usually a big deal. And if departments were simply eliminated, the faculty in those departments are probably going to find it difficult to land another position. Another aspect that Rowan highlights is what he terms the criteria for qualification for membership in the faculty. By the way, the quote comes from the article with a very long title. Uh, the title is, Penn faculty fear that donor who started the effort to oust Liz McGill is attempting to set the agenda for trustees. Uh, this article appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on the 12th of December of 2023. It was certainly not merely incidental that in asking about qualifications, Rowan mentions that the university charter has a provision for trustees to establish the standards for hiring faculty. When the faculty at Penn had a chance to read the email, the chapter of the American Association of University Professors issued this strong statement. Today, unelected trustees with no academic experience are evidently attempting a hostile takeover of the core academic functions of the University of Pennsylvania, functions related to curriculum, research, and the hiring and evaluation of faculty. The questions being considered by the trustees represent an assault on the principle of academic freedom, which was first articulated a century ago to safeguard the educational missions of universities. In response, a spokesman for Rowan has said that these are questions. He's not trying to provide answers. In no way is it what Mark wants. Ultimately, it's what the trustees and the faculty want. Not too surprisingly, the faculty didn't buy the idea that Rowan was merely asking questions. The idea that he was merely asking questions to help the faculty figure out what they wanted was even more vigorously dismissed. The three chairs of Penn's faculty senate issued this response. We unambiguously reject Mr. Rowan's view that the trustees are responsible for determining the University of Pennsylvania's academic policies. That's one piece of the context. But it was only as I was preparing for these episodes on plagiarism that another aspect emerged. Even before the charges of plagiarism were leveled against Claudine Gay, there was already a controversy at work in the Southern Baptist Convention. If you go to the Roy's report, this is the site of Julie Roy's, and search for plagiarism, you'll see a series of stories about evangelicals plagiarizing. The first one is about a woman known for writing about marriage and dating who is accusing a pastor, a Texas pastor, of using quotes without attribution from a range of evangelical pastors in one of his sermons. The next one is about a scholar who submitted a book review that turned out to be plagiarized and that led to discoveries of other things that he had plagiarized. The third instance is significant because of who it involves. Harper Collins attributed a chapter to John MacArthur, who is a well-known pastor in California, which had actually been written by one of his employees, Dennis Swanson. Um, and Swanson has said that MacArthur, uh, now I'm quoting, steals chapters from people. To be honest, I don't know even what to make of this charge. Who exactly wrote what? Even more interesting is the charge leveled by Swanson that MacArthur has never actually written a book 
but has always relied upon ghostwriters. While I have no idea whether that's true or not, there are many books that are written with the help of ghostwriters. The book may well be in the name of the person who supposedly wrote it, but another person's name is often added. So it reads like something like, by John Smith with Joe Jones. The with guy is the one who took all the stories and memories and put them into book form. But Swanson is most likely talking about an entirely different kind of ghostwriter, the sort that doesn't even get mentioned. In effect, Swanson is suggesting that MacArthur doesn't actually write his own books, but hires someone else to do the writing. I have absolutely no way of verifying or, for that matter, refuting that charge. But I can say that academics have long relied on research assistants, and I wouldn't be surprised if MacArthur got that kind of help. It's customary to mention such people in the acknowledgement page. But the instance which really shocked me was that of Carrie Scott. Some famous evangelical person named Christine Kane evidently included a significant amount of Scott's book in her own book. Just to be clear, those parts were not identified as quotations either by way of quotation marks or any other kind of acknowledgement. Even though Scott brought this to Kane's attention, Kane declined to do anything about it. The way Scott found out about the repetition was that she was listening to a promotional piece for Kane's book and suddenly recognized her own words. Yet even more interesting is the reply that Royce gives to Scott when she uh, details these uh, allegations. She says, I love some stuff that you say because you address plagiarism, which to me, it's become like, you know, overeating in the Christian community. It's no big deal. And then Roy goes on to say that to a lot of Christians, uh, I'm um, uh, quoting here, plagiarism is like no big deal. You know, their pastor does it every Sunday. So why is this a big deal? At least according to Royce, sermon plagiarizing is now a common occurrence. And since she reports on a lot of things that are going on in the evangelical world, she probably has a pretty good idea of whether that's true or not. One wonders just how common it is, but in one sense, its ubiquity should come as no surprise. While plagiarizing the active world is a cardinal sin rather than a mere venial sin, look that up if you need to, in the religious world, it's really not that much of a sin at all. Part of this is because pastors and priests have been borrowing the material for probably as long as preaching has existed. When you prepare a sermon, yes, I've given my share of sermons over the years, you're mostly working with a biblical text or perhaps a set of readings for the day. That means that one of your first stops will likely be a Bible commentary or two. There really is no established convention regarding what you should say about consulting commentaries and using ideas found therein. It would be rare for someone to say something like, for this week's sermon, I consulted X commentary written by Y. In fact, it would be totally normal to consult various commentaries, grab some ideas from them, and then preach a sermon based on those ideas. It would be highly unusual for a pa pastor to cite these commentaries. Here's an instance of an exception to that usual practice. Let's say you found a commentary that has a really different take on a passage. It doesn't sound like any of the other commentaries. In such a case, especially if that particular interpretation becomes an important part of your sermon, it would be highly appropriate to say something like, my sermon today is partly inspired by so-and-so's commentary. 
and perhaps even elaborate a bit more as to why this interpretation is so unusual. With a little further sleuthing on the issue of plagiarism, I ended up at a New York Times article titled, Sermongate Prompts a Quandary. Should Pastors Borrow Words from One Another? One of the examples provided is that of a sermon delivered by a pastor in North Carolina who lists what he calls the five selves. And then there's a pastor in Alabama who provides the exact same list a year later. But the example that takes the cake concerns a sermon given by J.D. Greer, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. About a year after he gives that sermon, a very similar sermon was given by his successor, Ed Litton. This article by Ruth Graham, who was a student at the institution where I taught, appeared in 2021 and includes a video that compares the two sermons. It was updated to reflect later developments in 2023. You don't have to watch much of the video to realize that Linton is heavily borrowing from Greer in the way that's, yeah, unfortunately not acceptable. In other words, it's not just that they're making reference to the same sources. It's that the sentences of Linton strongly mirror those of Greer. If you think this is simply a minor matter, you should know that the Southern Baptists who opposed the election of Linton are now calling for his resignation on the basis of this plagiarism. In the article, Tom Askell, who is identified as a high-profile Florida pastor, is quoted as saying, this is an issue of morality and it's issue of Christian virtue. He goes on to say, it's something that as recently as 10 years ago, everyone in conservative evangelical circles would say, of course pulpit plagiarism is wrong. Graham also cites Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where my father taught in the years following his retirement. And Moeller says that such a practice is despicable. Uh, John Piper is also quoted as saying that such a practice is unthinkable. To give you an idea of what's going on, I'm going to play a portion of the video embedded in that article. Just so you know, various videos were put together anonymously to show the similarities. The particular one was posted on this particular one was posted on the title, Pastor Plagiarism. The poster, who's not identified, writes the following. All of the clips of Lytton, that's going to be the second person that is going to be speaking, are presented in their proper sequence. Less than a handful of Greer's clips, Greer is the first person who's going to be speaking, are out, are out of order in order to match Lytton's. This shows that Lytton didn't just, and again, just so you know, I'm still quoting, this shows that Lytton didn't just borrow a few bits that he liked and incorporated them into his own sermon. So here goes. Here's what that passage sounded like. All right, Romans chapter 8, which many people regard to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the title of this morning's message is the greatest chapter in the Bible. John Piper says the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is the book of Romans. The greatest chapter in that letter is Romans chapter 8. And I would add the greatest verse in chapter 8 is verse 1. Uh, matter of fact, I love what John Piper said. He said the Bible is the greatest book. Romans is the greatest letter. Chapter 8 of Romans is the greatest chapter. And chapter 8 verse 1 is the greatest verse. Charles Spurgeon used to say that for those in Christ, 
it would be unjust for God to ever punish you for sin. He could never punish you for sin because that would be requiring two payments for the same sin. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, it would be unjust to hold a believer responsible for sin because that would require two payments for the same sin. Now let's try and pack this. First, both of them quote John Piper and they say they're quoting from him. No plagiarism there. To say that Romans is the greatest book in the Bible does not necessarily require a citation. If you live and work in a religious community that highly prizes the book of Romans, then you might simply be stating an obvious truth. Put another way, if you're Calvinist, the book of Romans will be very important to you because it contains so many elements of the Calvinist way of interpreting Christianity. People who are not Calvinists are probably going to think less highly of the book. That is to say, they're probably not going to say it's the greatest book in the Bible. However, there's a problem with what Greer says. After quoting Piper on Romans, he says, and I would add the greatest verse in chapter 8 is verse 1. What's interesting is that he says, I would add. But the reality is that what he adds is what Piper has already said. That verse 1 is the greatest. Technically, then, that would count as plagiarism. But such precision is probably out of place in a sermon. Greer has made it clear that he's stating Piper's belief, so that last little bit is not all that important, even though technically he's implying that the last bit is his own and it's not Piper's. Then they both go on to quote Charles Haddon Spurgeon and explicitly state that they are quoting from him. In other words, looking at simply the different statements would lead one to think nobody's really committed plagiarism. Instead, it's the fact that both are moving more or less across the same points and using much of the same language. Their sermons are not identical, but they're similar enough that any explanation along the lines of, well, they just happen to put their sermons together in that way, is a non-starter. Of course, one can ask just how bad something like this is. Unlike Moeller, I'm not inclined to say that Lytton is despicable. Piper says that such copying is unthinkable, but the reality is that copying in various degrees is simply part of giving a sermon. Earlier I mentioned the existence of services that write papers for students. You may know that there are many websites that offer pastors tips or outlines or even full sermons. The question though is the degree of attribution that's appropriate. My spiritual advisor, Barbara Crafton, used to send out emails most days and would often provide some sermon material for the upcoming Sunday. She welcomed anyone to use whatever she offered, though she requested that those who borrowed from her at least acknowledge that. It's a pretty small thing to ask. One would need merely to say something like, for some of my insights today, I'm indebted to Barbara Crafton. But we need to stop there. What I've attempted to do in this episode is to introduce the topic of plagiarism as an issue that is troubling both the academy and evangelicals. Please join us as we continue this discussion. Thank you.